Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Patsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of December 4th, 2017. On this week's show, Howard Bryant of ESPN and Jeremy Stahl of Slate will be here to discuss the rift among National Football League players over the league's plan to donate money to social justice causes and potentially silence the player protest movement. Tom Haberstrow of Bleacher Report will join us to examine the latest craze in the National Basketball Association. Everybody's going vegan. Finally, the New York Giants on Sunday became the last NFL team to start a black quarterback. I'll deliver an extended afterball about the first black quarterback signed by the team in 1967 and then talk with Lewis Moore, a professor at Grand Valley State University who studies African-American and sports history. Josh Levine is the editorial director of Slate Magazine. He's off this week. Through the magic of pre-recording, you will, however, hear him talk about basketball veganism. And I will now take advantage of my alone time to report that at a Scrabble tournament in New York over the weekend, I scored 614 points in one game. Yes, That was a personal best. Hand clap. My bingos weren't flashy, buggier, trustier, climate, and yodelers, plus Zaire for 68 points. Zaire is defined as a former monetary unit of Zaire, 
bunch of other high scores, including a play that, among other things, turned Bijou, B-I-J-O-U, into Bijou, B-I-J-O-U-X, for 40 points. I'll hang up and listen to your congratulations. After a round of negotiations with a group of players, the NFL last week agreed to donate $89 million over seven years to various minority or social causes. That seemed like a positive outcome to a year of protests that were begun by San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick. That is, until details emerged. Kaepernick's former teammate, Eric Reed and a couple of other players announced that they had split from the group that was negotiating with NFL management. Slate's Jeremy Stahl reported that Reed was asked as part of that deal if he would stop kneeling during the national anthem. And then Reed told Stahl in an interview that to pay for the new campaign, the NFL would shift money that was already pledged to other charitable efforts. Jeremy Stahl is here now. Hey, Jeremy. Hi, Stefan. How are you? Good. And so is ESPN columnist Howard Bryant. His new book, The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism, will be published in May. Hey, Howard. How are you? Jeremy, in your interview with Eric Reed, he called this agreement a charade. Uh, explain how the communications and the, the, the cooperation among these players fell apart. So Eric has been working with a group called the Players Coalition, which struck this deal uh, with the league that was announced last week. Um, and, you know, Malcolm Jenkins and Anquan Bolden are both at the head of that group. And Eric and a number of other players split from the group because of a number of issues they said they had with the deal. Specifically, Eric said that it was conveyed to him by Malcolm that the league had conveyed to him that money would be potentially shifted around from other causes that the league promotes, such as breast cancer awareness and military awareness, salute to service. And that would be how some of this funding would be acquired. Another issue we had with it was the structure of the how the money would be allocated, which set up this seven five uh, voting uh, proposal where whereby owners would have five representatives in a working group that would determine allocation of funds. Players would have five members and the league would have two members, which obviously then would give uh, the league and ownership a seven to five vote in determining how money would be set up. And he he kind of emphasized to me that he really just wanted to pause the breaks on the deal before it was announced and that uh, Malcolm Jenkins and the league according to him, seemed to be insistent that it move forward at this time. He, w he was also asked, as you mentioned, would you quit protesting if this deal went through? And that was a non-starter for him. You know, Howard, and that's what like my hair stood on end when I read this. I can't see this as anything but a cynical attempt by the league to get this protest movement to end. There's no question about all of this that when the league votes on this on the 13th, I have a hard time believing that the NFL is going to agree to give the players $7 million and still have the protest going on. Somebody in that room is going to say, why are we giving these guys all this money if they're still going to protest? So I think what the end game here is, is the real triangulation. So the players are going to get some form of money, whether it's shifting ad revenue, whether it's real dollars, a combination of the two, then they're, then the league is going to come in and they're going to rewrite their, their rules about protest before the anthem or during the anthem. 
So therefore, the Eric Reed faction of this group is going to be isolated. They're going to be exposed. So the players are going to get the money, but Reed and company aren't going to be allowed to protest, and they're not part of the coalition either. And I think that's really sort of the NFL's way of putting an end to this thing, even though that's not going to work. I mean, the NFL is a $14 billion industry. It beggars belief and credulity that they couldn't just do this, like find an agreeable way. Why does it always, and maybe I'm just being naive and Pollyanna-ish here, but why does it, why does it always have to be a quid pro quo? Why well, can't, there, well, why can't there, this just be, we believe that this is a worthwhile cause. We also respect the rights of our players to express themselves. We're willing to take the risks that some of our fan base doesn't agree with us, but we support the players in this in these efforts. Well, that would require courage, and there's not a whole lot of that. And also, I'm not sure how worthy a cause they think it is. And three, which is actually number one, they're not partners. The NFL... Major League Baseball's contracts are guaranteed. The NBA's contracts are guaranteed. The NBA really does view, and you can hear how LeBron James codes it in his language when he refers to the game as our game, our sport. He doesn't call it basketball, and he doesn't call the owners owners. He calls the owners by their first names. The NBA believes in partnership, even if it's not exactly partnership. The NFL makes it very, very clear, next man up, you are not in the room with us. And so I, I think that's the, the, the biggest reason why they just don't do this, because I don't I, I don't think that the league has ever viewed the players as as a group that needed you know to be in the room or that deserved that sort of equity. It's not going to happen that way. It never has. Jeremy, in your conversations with Eric Reed and others, did you get the sense that they feel this way, that 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 there's a recognition on their part, like we got to fight this on our own terms because dealing with the league has never, and it doesn't look like now, that it is going to be equitable or fair. So I want to emphasize that the the, the proposition that Howard just made, uh, essentially that you know the league was going to use this money and this allocation of this money as a way to present cover for changing the rules in order to stifle free speech and essentially ban the protests either by uh, bringing players, uh, keeping players in the locker room during the national anthem or by outright banning uh, protests during the national anthem uh, is something that I put to Eric. I, I asked him if he thought that this was just a plan to offer cover for a, a something done in conjunction that would ban the protests. And he said, absolutely. And that's when he said the it's a charade quote. Um, so yes, there is an understanding and a feeling among the players uh, that this is not, you know, above board. Well, and there's one other thing that's really important, Jeremy. And, and once again, you've got it. And and in talking with these guys, uh, we're all, it's interesting in these types of interviews, we're all working on the same story and we're, we're getting bits and pieces of the same thing. And there's one gigantic piece of this that has really not been discussed, at least in any real satisfactory way. And that is the Players Association. Where is your union on this? When you're looking at Major League Baseball, for example, which is the strongest union on earth, when you look at, you, you how on earth did the National Football League Players Association allow a rift to exist between between factions 
and allow one of those factions to negotiate with the League and and essentially have another group of the players feel sold out, especially when Eric Reed's biggest problem, if you really take stock of all the things that he said and that Russell Okunas and that a lot of the players have said, here's what they're really mad about. They're mad about the fact that the NFL has negotiated with guys who haven't put the type of skin in the game that they have. Eric Reed is on his knee every Sunday for two seasons, and yet Malcolm Jenkins is the leader of this group? They're not... Eric, Eric Reed's contract is up. Colin Kaepernick has, has not gotten a phone call from a single team this year to actually take a physical. He met with Seattle. He met with Baltimore. He's not thrown a football for anybody since the 49ers lost to the Seahawks in the last game of the season, last let, season. Let alone, Howard, that as the man who effectively started this and has suffered the, the greatest consequences, he hasn't really even been acknowledged by the NFL as a partner in well, and that's, and that's part of But that's part of the rift. That's a, a huge yes. part of the rift here. Yeah. Because when they wanted to, you know, first you had players like Michael Bennett and Eric Reed. And, and Kenny still saying, well, wait a minute, how are we supposed to negotiate this deal without Colin? And then you've got the Malcolm Jenkins side of the world who are like, well, this is Colin said this is bigger than him. It is bigger than him. So we need something to hold in our hands. And this is one of the different the counter arguments to you know, Malcolm Jenkins wrote a letter last night about an open letter saying I'm very insulted to be called a sellout. Here's here's one of the arguments in his defense. If somebody said to us, if we were having this conversation a year and a half ago, that the NFL owners would actually put real resources to this when the players started kneeling, you would laugh. So at least Malcolm Jenkins walks out of here and says, look, I got something I can hold in my hands. It may not be perfect, but I actually got money from these guys who refer to us as, as inmates in a prison. And so there is some value to that. On the other hand, you also look at it and you say, Okay, at what cost? And is this really is this is this real? Uh, one quick thing to bring up on this when you talk about the the rough outlines of this deal, the players are responsible for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, two hundred twenty five thousand dollars per team, which breaks down roughly to about either forty two hundred or five thousand dollars per player, depending on what that dollar amount um, expectation is going to be. The players haven't even voted on this. So when you start looking in that room, Eric, Eric went to Troy Vincent and went to the NFL and said, look, I don't believe from canvassing the room that we can raise that kind of money. That comes down to about $42,000 per player. They may not have that kind of support, which gives the league an out to, to dump the whole thing saying, look, well, we put up our end. I mean, a quarter million dollars to an NFL owner is a drop in the bucket. But trying to go into that locker room and get five grand per player every year for the next five years? I don't know about that. That raises an important point, which is something that um, Eric mentioned to me, which is that this has all been negotiated among a group of just 17 players. Of 17 And guys. as far as Eric knew, just nine in that working group were ultimately in agreement with this proposal. So you're talking about less than 1% of active rostered players. Yeah, it's uh, a 1,700-member union. Come, come to terms with the NFL, according to you know Eric's understanding of these numbers. And it, that's that's just shocking. And, and beyond that, when you begin to take a look at where the money initially is being earmarked, Dave Zirin does this in a, a column that posted this morning on The Nation, and uh, Diana Moskovitz uh, did a little bit of research for Deadspin. 
you know, it sounds great. 89 million bucks. Doesn't work out to that much over seven years. It's about the quarter of a million per year per owner. Where's the money initially earmarked to go? 25% to the United Negro College Fund, 25% to the Dream Corps, which is this new activist organization that was uh, started by Van Jones uh, on, of CNN, and then 50% to the Players Coalition. But that money would then be sort of administered by something called the Hopewell Fund, as Diana Moskovitz reported, which is this nonprofit run by a former Clinton administration official. So whether this is even money that is A, substantial, or B, going to groups that are going to be doing the kind of on-the-ground work that, say, oh, Colin Kaepernick has focused on in his donations over the last year is completely unclear, Howard. Well, it's, un it's unclear in terms of uh, can they actually pull this off, right. but it's very clear in terms of where they does it the United Negro College Fund really need money right now? That's like that's like me giving money to the Red Cross. Yeah, was, I mean, Zyron writes that it absolutely sounds like the first organization Jerry Jones would <laughs> Jerry when Jones it comes to any issue involving black people. Uh, exactly. And so you start looking at this and you got Cap on the ground. I mean, he's on the ground floor really dealing with organizations. Do you think that a, a five owner, five player, two NFL executive board is going to allow allocations to say anti-police brutality organizations that that challenge some of the police that have deals with the NFL in terms of security during on Sundays or, or be able to identify real grassroots organizations that are yeah, doing it's gonna be small hard. community work. Yeah, it's going to be real difficult. And I feel I actually I don't I don't know feeling for Malcolm Jenkins is part of it. But I think that I, as opposed to whether whether it's the N word or the Uncle Tom word. Calling somebody a sellout in the black community is one of the most hurtful things you could possibly say. Do I believe that Malcolm Jenkins sold out African-Americans in making this deal? Absolutely not. I, I really don't. I think he's a guy who's trying to get something that he can hold in his hands, trying to walk away with something to get something done. But on the other hand, in terms of the anger and the difficulties in making this deal, whether it's the union or whether it's dealing with Cap and his faction, did he did he hurt his own players? Yeah, absolutely. I think he did. I think he did. So I think it's important to note that, you know, there's the conflicts don't just boil down to, you know, is is Colin Kaepernick involved? Who should be in charge of this? Who who the leaders should be? Should it be Malcolm Jenkins? Should it be Colin? There are real issues and actual substantive differences that need to be addressed and are, exist between these players and uh, more so between the players and the league. And it's it's visible last night. Uh, I was at uh, the uh, ACLU's of Southern California's annual Bill of Rights dinner and Colin Kaepernick was a surprise uh, honoree. He received a, uh, a, an award for courage and bravery, uh, I think is what they called it. And he gave very, very brief remarks, which is, you know, he hasn't done a lot of in the last year uh, since he essentially lost his job for this protest. And he said, we must confront systemic oppression as a doctor would a disease. You identify it, you call it out, you treat it, and you defeat it. And Eric also used the words oppression and systemic oppression in, in, in conversations with me. And if you look at the memo that the league sent uh, owners about this proposal, 
it doesn't use anything resembling similar language. It talks no, about it this group will work directly with league staff to help identify future future initiatives that have broad support uh, and potential for high impact. And it talks about unity and it talks very generically about issues that the players care about without actually emphasizing this, the real uh, and sometimes divisive issues that the players are actually protesting for. The NFL isn't in the business of being an activist. The NFL well, is in the business of looking good. Well, Stefan, that's so how, an interesting how do we, point. How do you get to a place where the NFL can even be part of any sort of conversation or solution? The players have created a great platform with these protests that, to me, it could be argued is worth well more than $89 million. That is one of the great questions. The Major League Baseball Players Association had their uh, board meeting uh, this past week in Dallas, and everybody's trying to figure out where they fit in this question of social activism and platform against these gigantic corporate interests because, you know, Major League Baseball is a $10 billion industry. And one of the things that Tony Clark, the executive director, said to me was, are we a social institution or aren't we? We take public money for our stadiums. We we have all kinds of different charity or charitable initiatives in terms of the United Way and the NBA Cares and Major League Baseball and all of these different things. Are we a social institution? And if we are, then we need to live up to that. And I think that's one of the things that the NFL players are doing. They're saying, look, if we're going to have the military on the field, if we're going to honor police, if you're going to have a league that's got 70% or 68% a uh, uh, 68% black workforce, you're going to have to pay attention to issues that are important to us and live up to being the social institution that you say you are. And it's very interesting that the pushback along those lines hasn't come from the owners nearly as much as it has come from the fans who just want football. They don't want that social stuff because they necessarily don't believe it themselves. It's where we are right now. And who could have thought that five or 10 years ago? Howard Bryant is a columnist for ESPN, a commentator for NPR. He's the author of a new book. It's called The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. You can pre-order it now. Howard, thanks. My pleasure. Jeremy Stahl is a senior editor at Slate. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to NBA vegans, a heads up that on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, Howard Bryant is going to stick around. We'll talk some baseball. Where will Shohei Otani wind up? Why is Aaron Boone becoming manager of the New York Yankees? What will become of Giancarlo Stanton? If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg. 
This is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The slowest NBA team in 2017 plays at a faster pace than the fastest team in the league did two decades ago. Perhaps as a consequence of the league's recent Jones for Speed, players are getting skinnier now, with the Harvard Sports Analysis Collective finding that the average weight of an NBA player has gone down by three pounds in the last four years. It's certainly easy to find examples of players talking about wanting to lose weight. Here's ESPN's Chauncey Billups asking the Celtics' Kyrie Irving about his svelte figure. I know uh, you saved that beard this summer, man, but I'm telling you, you're looking in great shape right now. Have you lost weight, man, to get ready for the season? Uh, Well, this season, uh, being more of a plant-based diet, uh, getting away from, uh, you know, just the the animals and all that, man. I had to get away from that. So my energy is up. My my body feels amazing. So, uh, you know, just understanding what the diet is like for me and what's beneficial for me for having the highest energy out here and being able to sustain it at a very high level. As you heard there, Kyrie is getting away from the animals. He's gotten away from dairy, too. As Tom Haberstroh wrote in a feature for Bleacher Report magazine, Damian Lillard and Wilson Chandler and a bunch of other NBA players have embraced veganism as well. And not just because drinking tart cherry juice before bed every night makes for a delicious nighttime experience. Joining us now to discuss is Tom Haberstroh. He's a writer at large for Bleacher Report magazine and one of the proprietors of the Basketball Friends podcast. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for having me on, guys. So I tried to make a connection between the league being faster, players being skinnier, and this seeming like micro trend of players going vegan. Do you feel like that is a fair connection to make that players like Kyrie Irving, Damian Lillard, Wilson Chandler, and others that we'll get into are embracing this diet because the league is faster and players are skinnier? Well, I don't think it's necessarily a a big enough sample to say like, you know, eight or 10 or a dozen players have totally shifted the league's uh, pace. But I will say that generally speaking, uh, it is so hard to get by in today's NBA where the pace is so fast um, and just the the actual play calling is so much more sophisticated. Defenses are just, they have rotations on top of rotations that if you're not fit, if you're not healthy, if you're not taking, your, uh, taking care of your body at, at 100% of the time, you're going to get washed out really fast. And I think this is one of the signals of that. So it's not just Kyrie Irving or Damian Lillard. It's guys like Wilson Chandler, Ennis Kanter of the New York Knicks. Um, these guys have slimmed down in the offseason in hopes to get quicker and faster and alleviate you know, joint pain. Wilson Chandler, for example, said he feels so much better after two hip surgeries and trimming his diet to a vegan diet. He thinks this is permanent. The NBA has always been fast and competitive. Um, were players that much out of shape? And look, it's always also been an incredibly absurd grind. I mean, these are six foot to seven foot human beings who are jamming themselves into airplanes and flying all over the country constantly. Um, I mean, we've talked about other aspects of physical conditioning that have evolved over the years, and that can be sleep, 
training, other aspects of nutrition. Why has the league gotten faster and what other responses to it seem logical to you? And I guess the follow-up to that is how much of this might be a placebo effect that players feel like this is a smart thing to do and maybe the results are, yeah, they're positive because we'd all benefit from eating better. But whether we could attribute that much gain in performance to a, 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 a switch in diet, I wonder. I guess whatever advantage you can get, right? And I talked to the Atlanta Hawks nutritionist about this whole vegan thing. And she's like, you know, obviously you feel better. You cut out Cheetos and, uh, you know, fried chicken. You know, like sure. you obviously are going to feel better cutting out those, those fried foods. So it's not maybe the case that you're performing better because you're having those lettuce wrap uh, vegan tacos. It might be that you're just Delicious opting stuff. for those instead of, you know, trash food. So junk food. Um, so there's a lot of placebo effect potential on this for sure. And also just generally, if you lose weight, you might feel lighter, but the case might be that you're not going to be able to sustain this for the 82 game slog. And I think a lot of the trainers and nutritionists that I talked to had a lot of skepticism of whether they could hold this up over the entire seasons. And I think one reason uh, you're seeing it now is the What the Health documentary from this summer. Uh, Garrett Temple, who's the starting uh, guard for the Sacramento Kings, watched it this summer, as well as my, many other NBA players, and they got spooked. It's a, a pro-vegan, uh, almost radical, extremist uh, vegan uh, documentary. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but um, it's pretty strong. And so I think a lot of the players who, by the way, are on airplanes and in hotels late at night with not much to do, um, they watch these Netflix documentaries, and I think a lot of them got spooked and decided to look at their diets. I'm really glad that you brought up this Netflix documentary, What the Health, because that was the thing that was really most striking to me in the story. This is a story about diet and about veganism, but it's also a story about how trends spread in the NBA and elsewhere. And I haven't seen this documentary, but based on what I've read, the scientific term for this movie is like garbage propaganda. Um, Vox had a good story on some of the claims in this movie, like eating processed meats is as bad for you as smoking and eating an egg a day is as bad as smoking five cigarettes. Drinking milk causes cancer. I mean, this is all just wrong and <laughs> dumb, but it's presented in this like extremely persuasive way and players you know, Garrett Temple is known as one of the smartest and most thoughtful players in the NBA. I followed him for a really long time, like crazily intelligent guy, like is known for that in NBA circles. The fact that he would be persuaded by this movie is like really interesting to me. But I think that that means that like any smart person or like lots of smart people would be susceptible to stuff like this. But it, I guess it's just particularly interesting to me that NBA players whose entire careers are based on their bodies and knowing what should be put into them and like understanding diet would like watch this and be like, oh, I've totally got to be vegan now and not check out the claims from the movie. And I'm going to jump in here and say that this is sort of reflective of the way sports operate generally. Sports are very trend-based, right? So whether it's players seeing a documentary and deciding to join a cause or general managers 
focusing in on a particular kind of player, whether it's length in the NBA right now or speed on the court. You know, point, uh, possessions are up per game, as you point out in the story. Speed is a trend. Or in football, whether it's a particular style of offense or defense that's predominant at a particular time. These are sort of closed societies, and they're very small, and we underestimate how small and interconnected they are. One last thing before Tom jumps in. And I should add that, like, going vegan is not a bad thing, and it might that these players are like doing a good thing for their health, but just doing it based on bad information. I mean, it's, it's so true. Uh, the NBA is a copycat league. You know, the Golden State Warriors won a championship in 2015, and then suddenly everyone's taking transition threes, you know, and not everyone has Steph Curry on their team. So even though uh, this is a story about veganism, you're right, that the big picture here is players are using cryotherapy chambers, uh, you know, freezing their bodies after games, uh, they're eating differently after games, they're sleep. Like, I think we kind of forget that these guys are basically living with each other. These 15 guys are living with each other and sleeping with each other. The, the idea is they, they relate to each other on a whole nother level. I mean, they're, they're basically cooped up together for, for six months, seeing more of each other than their families. And they and it just kind of is contagious, this idea of like, hey, you're playing really well late in games. What is it? Oh, man, I changed my diet. It's, I feel great. You should try it out. I mean, it's not for everyone, but you should try it. And like Jalen Brown for the Boston Celtics, he was a vegetarian in college in California, and his goal is to be vegan by 25. He's 23 years old right now, and he looks at Kyrie Irving. He's like, man, I want to look like that in late-game situations. Like, I want to do that. And so I think there's a lot of that going on, which is – if Kyrie Irving was stinking up the joint um, this season and the Celtics were in the tank, I don't know if the vegan story is going to be that big. But now that every, everyone who seems to be going with this diet or getting away from meats, um, a bunch of them are performing well so far, I think there is just some sort of momentum and some you know, eyebrow raising around the league. Is like, okay, what is it about this that maybe is true? Maybe it's not about veganism. But what what if we can have some takeaways just about the overall diet of our NBA players? It is certainly uh, an underappreciated fact that sports leagues are like cults. And I think that's what you were kind of alluding to. These players are cooped up. They are hostages. They are hostages to the system and to their training schedules. And to Netflix. And to Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) So it does not, it never surprises me when there's a trend like this in pro sports. Back to the, the the correlation causation issue here. With Kyrie Irving, I mean, the numbers that you use in the story are pretty damn dramatic. Um, the speed part particularly, you point out that Kyrie's average speed has increased by three um, tenths of a mile per hour, 26 feet of extra ground per minute on the floor. Um and then when you put it in those terms, you sort of recognize, like, it's probably imperceptible to most of us when we watch an NBA game, but the underlying statistics do show, don't they, Tom, that, yeah, there's a lot more ground being covered and players are out there. But wait, you know, but wait. isn't that because he's trying on defense? Well, it might be for <laughs> yeah, him, but, it, but, if it, but if it's also up across the league, then, you know, then it does show that the game is faster. And there's well, yeah, I think, I think there's no doubt that the game is faster. And I think I, I mentioned that in the story that it's not just the sheer raw uh, miles per hour gain. It's the acceleration year over year ranking among the rest of the league is second highest 
So Kyrie Irving um, has been generally known as a dog defensively. And I talked to his former GM, uh, David Griffin, uh, there for Cleveland, who was part of the Cleveland staff when they drafted him. And uh, they won a title together in Cleveland. And David Griffin was like, whatever Kyrie Irving wants to do, he will do. And so he could absolutely be Gary Payton defensively if he wanted to. He just has to put his mind to it. He's that talented. Um, and he pointed to his finals play against Steph Curry in 2016. Um, just defensively, if he really wants to grind it, uh, he can do it. And this year, he's among the league leaders in steals and deflections. Um, and the, the Celtics defense is number one in the NBA. Part of that activity by Kyrie Irving is leading to real on-court results. So maybe that's just, you know, he's trying defensively. But look, guys. We'd like to try and, and go out and run five miles every other day, but it's another thing to actually do it. And I think part of the re- reason that Kyrie Irving is able to try defensively may be because he's kind of over, you know, looked at his entire uh, inputs. You know, what is he eating? How is he sleeping? Um, because now he wants to maximize both ends of the floor for Brad Stevens. Let's end with um, kind of taxonomizing or categorizing this trend, because I do like to think of it as a trend or a social contagion. It's funny, like one of the other ones that comes to mind is players eating at the Cheesecake Factory. That's like a no- known thing that NBA <laughs> players are obsessed with. It. Another one that came up earlier this year, I forget who did the story. Maybe it was Baxter Holmes on uh, players eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That being another uh, trend that was big in the NBA. There's also the Versa Climber, this piece mm-hmm. of exercise equipment that um, LeBron James like really touted and now every team and every player uses it. Are there other ones that uh, I'm forgetting, Tom? Yeah, there was one last year I wrote about um, strobe light glasses. Have you heard about these? <laughs> no. <laughs> Missed that and don't, don't laugh. There's like actual real uh, player like Kawhi Leonard, Steph Curry, um, and even Michael Jordan. There, I wrote it uh, last year for ESPN.com, strobe light glasses uh, worn by a bunch of star players. They're like... It's hard to explain without actually seeing it, but it's glasses you put on your face that blind your vision like a strobe light. And so when you do basketball drills with these glasses on and then you take them off after like 10 minutes, the world seems to slow down. And so for Steph Curry and Kawhi Leonard, their their ability to play in the open court and just be dominant in the open court, a lot of this, their trainers used... Uh, strobe light glasses to to improve. So it's cr- it's crazy. Uh, our the, our the producer story- was just showing us a video of Steph like with the glasses on, dribbling a basketball <laughs> and a tennis ball simultaneously, yeah. like kind of looking like Ray Charles. It's it's very compelling video. So so that's another trend is just like they wear glasses, um, they eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. There was the tinderization of the NBA store I did last oh, year, right. which is, you know, about? guys were sleeping more on the road because these apps were allowing them to find um, companionship, <laughs> to, put, to put it lightly, to find companionship on the road a lot more efficiently instead of going to the bars late at night and trying to find women that way. They just have it pretty much Uberized um, in their hotel. And so a lot of this is just becoming, you know, these, these trends in society, um, just technology and food, nutrition, sleep. You know, I love writing these stories because it isn't really about the NBA. It's just about people in general, in general um, learning to live in 2017. And we just see it, uh, you know, being played out on the court with wins and losses with basketball players. 
Tom Haberstrow is a writer at large for Bleacher Report magazine. He also is a part of the Basketball Friends podcast. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In 1920, a black man, Fritz Pollard, played what was effectively quarterback for the Akron pros of the American Professional Football Association. Five years after that, the New York Giants joined what had become the National Football League. And 97 years later, on Sunday, the Giants started a black quarterback for the first time. But Geno Smith wasn't the first black quarterback in Giants history. That would be Hank Washington. Washington was a 6'3", 215-pound pocket passer who, in 1966, as a senior at West Texas State University, threw for more than 2,100 yards, fifth in the country, including 470 in one game. He was the first black quarterback to play in the North-South Shrine game and in the Senior Bowl, both of which were held in Alabama. He once said he had thrown a ball 95 yards in the air. Some draft reports listed Washington among the year's top quarterback prospects alongside Steve Spurrier of Florida, Bob Greasy of Purdue, and Don Horn of San Diego State, who were selected third, fourth, and 25th in the draft. There were 420 more players selected by the NFL's 21 teams in the 17 rounds of the 1967 draft. Hank Washington wasn't one of them. Bill Nunn Jr. of the black newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, wrote at the time, some teams drafted soccer players, others went for basketball stars, still others grabbed individuals who had performed in track. Nunn wrote, in your case, Hank Washington, there is no doubt that you have become a victim of your color. Black men just didn't play quarterback in the NFL. Fritz Pollard predated the actual league, and he was more of a runner than a passer, as were Joe Lillard, who started for the Chicago Cardinals in 1932, and George Taliaferro, who started for the Baltimore Colts in 1953. Two black quarterbacks were drafted in the 1950s. One of them was Bernie Custis, whom Josh talked about on the podcast last week, and a couple had played in the regular season. The aptly named Willie Thrower threw eight passes in one game for the Bears in 1953, and Charlie Brackens threw two passes for the Packers in 1955. But no black quarterback had started a game in the modern NFL. The Giants signed Hank Washington in April 1967. The New York Times put the news on the front of its sports section. Here's the lead of the story by Gerald Eskenazi. The football Giants have signed a Negro quarterback who had been passed up by every club in the recent professional draft because he was reported to have been, quote, too cocky, end quote. Eskenazi quoted an unnamed scout who said, The kid has been cocky all through school. He has always said he won't play anywhere but quarterback. Aha! Washington was a black quarterback who wanted to play quarterback. No matter how many yards they amassed in college, black men were considered ill-equipped to play quarterback in the NFL. 
Eskenazi quoted Giants owner Wellington Maris saying the team only signed Washington after he had, quote, repudiated the statement that he would only play quarterback, end quote. Maris said Washington had a chance to play as a receiver or as a defensive back. The Giants did actually draft a black quarterback that year, Dave Lewis of Stanford, in the fifth round, but they drafted him as a punter. Lewis chose to play in Canada. So how exactly was Hank Washington cocky? The unnamed scout claimed that other teams were going to take him in the first or second round of the draft, but then he started talking big. The scout quoted Washington saying that he was as good as Spurrier and Greasy, and the only team that he couldn't play for was the Miami Dolphins, but only because the coach's son, George Wilson, was the starter. Washington denied saying those things. Quote, maybe I was the victim of newspaper stories saying how great I was, he said after the draft. They exaggerated a bit and possibly scared some teams off, thinking my price would be too high. Regardless, you'd think a team might actually want a player, especially a quarterback, who believed in his ability. But not a black player, not a few weeks before Muhammad Ali would refuse induction into the army, and a few months before race riots would engulf Detroit, Newark, and other cities. Cocky, black, and quarterback wasn't happening. The perception that Hank Washington was anything but deferential was reason enough not to draft him. Still, the Giants gave Washington $40,000, a lot for an undrafted free agent. The team didn't expect him to compete for the starting job. New York had just traded four top picks to the Minnesota Vikings for Fran Tarkenton, and they had a veteran backup in Earl Morrill. So why did they sign him? Because then as now, teams wanted talent. I suspect that Wellington Mara's protestation that Washington was better suited to be a position player was part racial stereotyping and part public relations. The team knew he was good because one of its assistant coaches, Emlyn Tunnell, had been scouting Washington for two years. Tunnell was a standout defensive back for the Giants and the Green Bay Packers from 1948 to 1961. He also was the first African-American player on the Giants, and just a few weeks before the team signed Hank Washington, he became the first black player inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Let's contrast Eskenazi's reporting in the Times with a story in the Philadelphia Tribune, that city's black newspaper. Rather than relying on an anonymous, no-doubt white scout to trash Washington's character, the Tribune reporter Claude E. Harrison Jr. interviewed an actual coach on the Giants, Emlyn Tunnell. Tunnell told Harrison he was surprised that Washington went undrafted because he is without a doubt one of the top pro prospects coming into the league this year. I don't know whether he'll be the first Negro pro quarterback, Tunnell said. Maybe he meant modern pro quarterback or successful modern pro quarterback. But his record as a college player is too outstanding to overlook. Unlike Mara, who had to emphasize that Washington was likelier to make the team as a receiver or a defensive back, black positions, Tunnell said the Giants will give him every possible opportunity to survive as a quarterback. Our job is to put together a winner, and if Washington shows he has the ability to do a job, he plays. Tunnell called Washington a smart kid. He'll show up at camp ready to play, and if he does 75% of what I know he's capable of doing, you'll see him at Yankee Stadium when the 1967 season gets underway. Giants fans did not see Hank Washington in the Bronx. Though he apparently did well in training camp, Ali Sherman, the coach, said he had fine potential as a quarterback. He was sent to the Giants minor league team, the Westchester Bulls, who played in Mount Vernon just outside of the city. 
The GM of that team, a former Giants player, said Washington was a clean-cut kid and a hard worker. So much for cocky. Washington played the entire season with the Bulls, alternating with an older quarterback. He returned to Giants camp in 1968, but again was sent to Westchester, where he threw for four touchdowns in one game, but was inconsistent overall. In 1969, Washington joined another minor league team in Hartford, Connecticut. The following year, he fell ill and was diagnosed with bladder cancer. Hank Washington died in 1971 at the age of 25. I stumbled across the story of Hank Washington in the Twitter feed of Lewis Moore. He's an associate professor of history at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Moore is the author of two just-published books, I Fight for a Living, Boxing and the Battle for Black Manhood, 1880 to 1915, and We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete, and The Quest for Equality. Lewis, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. It is hard to know whether Hank Washington didn't make it with the Giants because he wasn't good enough or because he was the victim of the racial bias that governed the day. But his story really is a familiar one from that time. Right. Um, familiar because he was touted as the first hope. Uh, so other there's other black quarterbacks before him. But I think when what Hank had above them was he was the, his size and his accuracy, and he had the throwing power. So the rumor was that he could throw at 90 yards. Um, he was more one of the more efficient quarterbacks in college that year, uh, six foot three, about 215 pounds. Yep. And so the black press really thought that he he would be that guy. Um, and so I think that's why it's important, right? Because if it's about merit. Um, you find the first guy that's going to fit this mold. There's no way you can turn him down. And then, as you mentioned, he goes undrafted. Right. And then the thing about him was, like, you couldn't deny that this guy was a prototypical quarterback. Size, skill, strength, ability, statistics. This wasn't like, oh, you know, he's only 5'11", or oh, he's only 185 pounds, he'd be better off playing defensive back or wide receiver. This was sort of undeniable that this guy had to play quarterback. And still, you had, as I mentioned in my piece, the owner of the Giants saying that he's more likely to make the team if he's a defensive back or a wide receiver. Right, and I think that's where that, that question about was this about race comes in. Because I think, you know, they those owners at that time, the GMs, the coaches, the scouts, they couldn't see past that, right? And so I don't think anything... I don't think when you talk about black quarterbacks, even to this day, there's no really race-neutral conversation because it's so rooted in that idea that can he be a leader, can he think, can he make these throws. Um, and still, like you said, they're like, well, you know, you can't sign this exclusive contract. We're only going to get a tryout for quarterback. Uh, you're going to have to, you know, change your mind and, and be, you know, be up to playing DB or, or receiver where they all went before him. Uh, so very few got to throw passes, and, and, and that's a shame because a lot of them were great in college. And you said and you know, a lot of black men did play quarterback in college, and usually they had to declare in advance, which is something Hank Washington wasn't willing to do, that they wanted to play another position. I don't think that we appreciate you know, the other side of the story, which is just how pernicious this glass ceiling was, because every time a black man or a black kid played quarterback in high school or college, it mattered in the black community, right? 
Yeah, and it mattered. So it mattered. And there's when we say college, there's two types, right? There's the HBCUs, there's the black colleges, and then there's the PWI, the predominantly white institutions. Mm -hmm. And they both mattered. Um, And I think Hank Washington's story is is more amplified because he went to an integrated school in the South. Um, So, you know, if you're going to say, well, they don't have leadership skills or a white player won't take, um, you know, you know, um, instruction for him. Well, Hank proved otherwise. Um, and so, same thing with the Big Ten quarterbacks, like Sid Williams, who played at Wisconsin in 1957. During, you know, he's from Little Rock, and so while everything's going down in Little Rock, you know, the National Guard is making sure that these nine students could get into this school. He's starring at Wisconsin, and people are looking at him and saying, "Look, if he could start here, then integration at these southern schools shouldn't be a problem." So you're projecting, you know, if you're the black community, what these guys do at these, you know, these predominantly white schools and saying, like, look, integration can work. And and in Hank Washington's case, uh, he played in the in those two all-star games in Alabama. I mean, this sent a message. And within the black community, how was it received in the black newspapers, in the towns where these athletes came from, how was it received when they went to places like Wisconsin to predominantly white institutions and were not only allowed, in air quotes, to play quarterback, but performed well? Uh, it's a huge deal. Just just being at one of those schools. So um, the Baltimore Afro-American, so the, the main writer for them was Sam Lacey, so a Hall of Fame writer. Right. And what you start to see in the 1930s and 19, you know, into the 1940s is he kept a list. And so every week you would go look at this is a weekly newspaper, and, and he would list it and tell his readers what these guys are doing at these you know, predominantly white institutions, you know, no matter what position they are. But then when you get to, like, quarterbacking, especially in the late 1950s where it seems like there's more of them, um, there's their count. Like, so you could look at a news, like, Ebony Magazine would have its annual, like, who's the black quarterback, mm-hmm. uh, how many are there at these, these schools, at these white schools, and, you know, what are their chances of making a pro? So this, this mattered. What was striking to me is how executives of the 60s and into the 70s talked about black quarterback prospects. You know, first it was like with Hank Washington and Marlon Briscoe, who started a year in 1968 for the Denver Broncos before they forced him to wide receiver and he left and played for the, uh, the, the Buffalo Bills. Al Davis drafted Eldridge Dickey in 1968. He said something very similar praising uh, Dickey, said he has great potential as a quarterback. And then the Raiders promptly moved him to wide receiver, and he was out of the league three years later, maybe because he would have been a better quarterback than a wide receiver. So it's that language of sort of institutionalized racism that seems to have kept some of these players from even having the opportunity to achieve their potential. Right, and I think what's happening, too, is that there's a lot of even though, you know, it's on, like black newspapers are picking this up, some of these guys are making a major coverage, right? So Eldridge Dickey, there's stuff in Sport Magazine. They're talking about him in Sports uh, Illustrated. His nickname is the, the Lord's Prayer because after Hank Washington, he becomes the next guy. Like He's the next big thing. Um, and I think what happens is owners are really reluctant to specifically, they can't say, well, you know, we're going to switch them to receiver, um, even though you know that's going to happen. So they seem a little bit more open-minded about them getting a chance. And so Dickey gets a chance, a uh, first-round draft pick. Um, and it's clear, as you said, that he's not going to get a chance to play quarterback. He plays a little bit in the preseason, but while Davis loves his athleticism and wants to put a wide receiver, Dickey 
getting drafted in the first round. He's the first black quarterback to get drafted in the first round with really this idea that he'll play. It was so important to the black community in the Bay Area that they were going to boycott the Oakland Raiders wow. uh, because he didn't get a shot. Uh, so there was talks about boycotting the Oakland Raiders because he wasn't getting his fair shot about quarterbacks. Um, and Al Davis was saying, like, no, this is not it. I'll give him his chance. But then Al Davis also said, like, nobody's going to tell me what to do with my team. Uh, so the boy, boycott, from what I've seen, kind of fell through, but that's how important it was to get somebody finally an opportunity to play at quarterback. You've written a lot about black athletes during the civil rights era. What does Hank Washington's story or Eldred Dickey's story or, or the stories of any number of, of these black quarterbacks say to you? Why, why, why are they important and, and how do they fit in in the, the evolution of the, of the black athlete? Well, it's like like the manager. The quarterback is that next big moment that happens in the 1960s, like when we talk about barrier breakers, right? So you have Jackie Robinson, you have Althea Gibson. You've hit every, you've achieved everything. You've broken out all these barriers. But at that time, you hadn't done quarterback, you hadn't done manager, you hadn't done coach. And this is really about really signifying that black people can lead, that black people have the intellect to do these things, and also that white people, you know, white athletes, right, and, and white fans will, will accept this. And so this is the talk that you get in the 1960s from the black press. Like, this is important, right, because it's not just about sports. It's what happens off the field. And so oftentimes you're looking at the success of the black athlete in hope that those white fans that cheer them will then, you know, hire you for a position, right? So if we're talking about the quarterback, the coach, or the manager, it's the same thing, that, that okay, you're going to cheer for this guy. Well, then give me a chance at the company to, to lead the company, and that's why it's so important. Lewis Moore is an associate professor of history at Grand Valley State University. He's got two new books out, I Fight for a Living, Boxing and the Battle for Black Manhood, 1880 to 1950, and We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete, and The Quest for Equality. Lewis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty and Hank Washington. And thanks for listening. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi. 
This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.